0: Genesis 37, where we're going to be in our series in the beginning, still looking at uh, the book of Genesis. And envy is a word you don't really hear that often, but it is quite prolific in our culture and I think something that needs to be resurrected and talked about a little bit more. I'd be bold enough to make the claim that pretty much all of our political discourse and most of the the discourse we see in media is centered around the concept of envy. Uh, We pit the poor against the rich. We pit... Women against men, minorities against majorities, we pit even the skinny against the fat. We find all sorts of issues that we can get outraged from because someone has and someone doesn't have. And right at the center of it all is the one who does not have is very envious of the one who does have, who receives uh, favor from someone else, especially the government. And if the government shows any favor to one group over another, you can rest assured that there is an Australian out there with a closed fist, angry and outraged and willing to let everyone know on social media just how angry they are. Envy has gripped our culture much in the same ways as we're going to find in this passage of Scripture this morning. The favor of others, the benefits that others get, doesn't warm our hearts, but it leads us to jealousy, And as we look to the passage, we're going to see the antidote to envy is sacrifice. And so I've got three points that I want to share with you guys this morning. My first point is the envious brothers. My second point is the malicious brothers. And my third point is the bereaved father. So if you are in Genesis 37, we are going to be reading from verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loves Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told this to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept, but his father kept the saying in mind. Well, our passage here this morning is introducing us to another section of the book of Genesis. Just as last week we saw Genesis 36 was an entire section of the generations of Esau, This week, we are starting with the generations of Jacob. Moses is not just going to devote an entire chapter to the generations of Jacob, but actually the rest of the whole book of Genesis, he's going to push pause. He's going to slow down, and we're going to work through the story of God's people as descended from Jacob. There's this particular focus on their family and lineage. And as we read this, you might think, wait a minute, God chose these people. What we're going to read as we're going through Genesis 37, you may be surprised to find out that these are indeed God's chosen people. As we see murder on their minds, as we see slavery, as we see all sorts of horrific deeds being done, we have to remind ourselves that God chose sinful people, just like you, just like me, to bring about His plan, to bring about a great deal of transformation and change to the world. And we're going to be introduced to a very important person. This is Joseph, a 17-year-old boy. He is the baby brother. He's pasturing the flocks with his older brothers. The passage tells us that he was just a boy with the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah. And you remember, these, uh, these uh, children were Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons that were kind of like the lesser sons, right? They were born to the concubines. So they weren't quite the, the privileged sons. They were the lesser sons. And so Joseph was hanging out with them. And Joseph decides to bring a bad report back about what these sons were up to. Perhaps they were doing some dodgy stuff, cutting a few corners as they were pasturing the flock. And they were already annoyed. They're stuck with their baby brother, Joseph, their half-brother. They don't really like him to begin with. And they're stuck with him. And then he rats them out. He snitches on them. To his father, he brings a bad report to them, and this would have been frustrating, annoying. They have to babysit him, and they are getting snitched on. The Hebrew word here for bad report is the same report that was given to the Israelites in Numbers 13.32 that talked about how in the Promised Land there were these giants, and we are going to get destroyed, and they're going to wreck us, and then God got really angry at them. Well, it's the same word here, bad report. It's embellished, Right? Joseph was going out of his way to get his brothers in trouble with his father. And well, he's not off to a good start with his brothers, is he? It's kind of a classic family dynamic, right? Many siblings have to deal with it. I was the oldest child in my family, and I know my baby brother got away with a lot of stuff. My parents would never admit it, but you know, they did have favorites, and unfortunately I was not among them. They get away. They get away with a lot more than I did. They received a lot more blessings than I did. They were just treated better. And as an eldest child, I was resentful most of the time of the things they got away with. I remember I had written down in my notebook the times that I was going to bed. At what age? Because my dad, when I would turn like 10, he'd be like, you can go to bed at 8 p.m. now. And so I was like, my brothers, when they get to 10, they're allowed to go 8 p.m. And guess what? They're 7 and they're staying up till 8 p.m. And I'm thinking, this isn't fair. I had to do an extra year of time to stay up later. And it's kind of what's going on with these brothers. But it's like ratcheted up to like 10, to 11. This is pretty, this is pretty outrageous, the, the favoritism we're seeing here. Jacob gives him a coat of many colors. Now, you may be thinking, oh, you know, kind of big deal There's a coat of many colors. We've well, got to understand the time that we're in. To dye clothing, dyes were incredibly expensive. And to dye them many colors would mean this is like luxurious. It'd be like a family buying Gucci for one of their kids and then going to Vinnie's for the rest of them. You know which son or which daughter is the favored one. And every time uh, Joseph would strut around in his coat showing it off to his brothers, look at me, you know. I'm uh, the favored brother. His brothers would get so frustrated right? The text tells us that when the brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, in verse 4, they hated him and would not speak peacefully to him. They were jealous. The brothers were envious. They wanted their father's respect. They wanted their father's admiration and they wanted his love and here he is doting on this young son who ultimately has done nothing to deserve the father's love, has he? Right? He's just a boy, He's getting babysit by his brothers, bringing back bad reports. He's, you know, according to the brothers, he should not be receiving this amount of favor. They were outraged. They could barely speak to him, right? You know, when people don't like you, you can really quickly work out when they don't like you, when they start being snarky, dismissive and hostile and defensive and just plain rude to you. Well, this is exactly what's happening with the brothers. They can't speak peacefully. There is no peace in that relationship. There is a lot of tension and envy is a dreadful sin. Envy is a resentful discontentment at another's fortune. Whether that discontentment is at innate qualities, such as someone is just more beautiful than you are, they're stronger, they're more intelligent, they're emotionally stable. Often we can find ourselves being envious of just qualities in that person. We can find ourselves being envious at possessions, like they've got a better house than us, they're more wealthy, they've got a better job, they've got a better uh, relationship, or in this case... They have their father's favor and we do not. The Apostle Paul might have had this passage in the back of his mind when he says in Galatians 5, 25 to 26, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. According to Paul here, as soon as envy takes root in someone's soul... Especially in these brothers' minds, they become conceited. And that word conceited means proud, arrogant. And they launch into provoking one another. And Joseph and his brothers are in this kind of cold war at the moment. But the cold war is going to start to turn hot very quickly. And Jacob, we've come to know Jacob, you know, the father, for a certain kind of qualities and certain kind of traits throughout his story, haven't we? Jacob knows that there is brewing tension in the camp. He'd have to be blind not to see the brothers at each other's throats because of the way that he's treated uh joseph above them we've got joseph strutting around like a peacock snitching on his brothers and we have the rest of the brothers snarky jealous and jacob bites his tongue he hopes that this will sort itself out with time we remember him doing this right when his wives were having issues he bit his tongue. He didn't say anything. He kind of just was a pawn to be used in their battle. We remember with Laban, who was mistreating him as his father-in-law, and he didn't say anything until like 14 years later. Jacob doesn't do anything. He just bites his tongue. And this time, every other time beforehand, God came and rescued him, didn't he? Well, it's not really going to work out the same way this time. It's not going to work out how it always had. Just like at Shechem, the brothers were going to take things into their own hands. And the series of events is going to cause the brothers to unravel. And in this moment, while tension is high, God sends to Joseph a dream. Now, God doesn't do things by accident. He doesn't send a dream to Joseph and then go, Oh, maybe that wasn't a good time to send that dream. I should have waited a little bit longer. God was provoking them with this dream. And in the dream, Moses tells us that they were all binding sheaves. They were gathering up stalks of grain into bundles. You know, when you harvest your grain, you go out, you get your scythe, you cut them all up, you wrap them all up into a tight bundle and you tie them off. And you go and you do that, and that's how you would bring in the harvest. And in this dream, Joseph saw that his sheaf, which was lying on the ground rose up and stood upright, and then 11 sheaves rise up and then bow down to the one in the middle. A bizarre dream, but it was clear what it meant. The brothers got it straight away. You only bow down to a ruler in this culture. In fact, it would be really bizarre for us to bow down to anyone in our culture, but especially in their their time, if you would bow down, you'd only do so to a ruler, and the brothers were outraged. They say in verse 8, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, some come to this passage and they view Joseph as kind of this naive youth. As this guy, he didn't really know what he was doing. He was kind of innocent. He was young. He didn't quite realize that he was provoking his brothers like this, but I don't think so. I think he knew it would tick him off. I think he knew they'd be bothered by it. And he told them anyway because i've got my father's favor and you can't touch me and it was true they couldn't they couldn't touch him no matter how angry they got you know no matter how much they bullied him he knew he had his father's favor and no one could harm him but even if we give him the uh benefit of the doubt right joseph will give him the benefit of the doubt maybe he just was an idiot he didn't quite realize how much that would tick his brothers off and he just tells them well what do you do about the second dream He tells him again. After he knows what has happened with the first dream, he has another dream, much to the same sort of thing, and he tells him again. This time the sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed down to him. A wise young man, in fact, just any ounce of wisdom would indicate to anyone, maybe don't tell the second dream. You know how it went with the first dream, but no, he tells it. He tells it, doesn't he? And this time, Jacob actually says something. He doesn't bite his tongue and he rebukes Joseph. But it's a little too late. The passage tells us that the brothers were jealous. And notice this when jealousy, when envy is fully formed, it turns to malice. Malice is like the flip side of the coin of envy. If envy is pain at another's good fortune, then malice is pleasure at another's misfortune. Right? Malice is when something bad happens to that person you don't like, and man, that feels good. They deserve that. And we're going to see that the brothers turn to malice. My second point, the malicious brothers. Let's keep reading, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Well, Jacob, it says that Jacob kept the dream in mind, right? Well, so did the brothers. They kept it in mind, but in a completely different way. The brothers had gone off to Shechem to pasture the flock. Now, this is a pretty dangerous deal because you remember Shechem was the place that Levi and Simeon went and butchered all the men in the city. And they had to flee from there because everyone in the area was just outraged at this behavior. And so they're going up back to the place where their sister Dina was raped. Where horrible things have happened. So, the expectation from Jacob is something bad might happen while they're over there. So, Joseph, quick, head over there, see if everything is good with them, see if they are okay. He's worried for their safety. And so, Joseph sets off to Shechem. And when he gets there, the brothers are nowhere to be seen. And as he's kind of like walking around the fields, trying to have a look, trying to see where his brothers are, some man sees him, obviously looking for someone, and goes up to him and says, Hey, who are you looking for? What are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. And he tells him, go to Dothan. Now, Dothan is a very fertile, great place to go, but it is also on a major trade route between Egypt and the rest of the world. And so Joseph heads there immediately, and he catches up with his brothers. And the whole time, Joseph is wearing his coat. You could see him from a mile away. You know that coat. As soon as you see it, he comes over the horizon. The brothers go, hey, who's that over there? And they go, Joseph. Ah, Joseph, he's coming to check on us. Maybe he's going to tell, give our father another bad report. And they remember the dream and they say, this is our chance. Daddy's not here to protect him anymore. Let's get him. Let's kill him. It says, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. The end result of envy, as I said, is malice. The brothers had become malicious and intended not only to harm Joseph, but to kill him in an act of sheer heartlessness. They were going to blame it on a fierce animal. But the only fierce animal in this area are the brothers. The only ones that are going to devour anyone is the brothers to their own flesh and blood. To their own family, they were going to murder him. Proverbs 14.30, Solomon says, Envy makes the bones rot. What a good proverb. The only thing that envy leads to is misery and discontentment. Envy is like a cancer to our very bones. It's miserable. In fact, I would wager that the most miserable people you know are the most envious people you know. If you can't count your blessings, you will count your curses. I guarantee it. This might make you think that the brothers valued their father's favour so highly that they were willing to kill for their father's favour. I don't think that's true. I think they didn't want Joseph to have it, rather than them having it. The fact that Joseph had it was the thing that tore them apart as opposed to not having it themselves. Have you ever heard the phrase, if I can't have it, no one can? Envy. This is the phrase of a person overrun with envy. It's soul destroying. And look what it does to these brothers, to these sons of Abraham. It's deadly. We all remember being siblings and the constant conflict over who gets what. My dad would, every now and then, buy us a Mars bar. And there's three brothers, so we had to split it three ways. And you can guarantee the ruler came out. And we got the knife out, and we measured it out to the millimeter and cut it. And I remember, my dad would let the youngest brother pick which one he wanted first. And then he let my second brother, and then I'd get the last reject piece that came on. And I remember it physically hurt me that my brothers had like a millimetre more than me. Like they had a millimetre more chocolate, and yet I was so upset by that reality. And really, that's just envy. Is that millimetre of chocolate really that worthwhile? Well, when envy is coming into the equation, yes, it is. And parents... You know, me as a new parent, expecting another baby, I've got to be wise for this. And if you're a parent here, nip this behavior in the bud early. Because it's cute, it's funny when they're kids, right? But when they're adults, it's not as funny anymore and it's not as cute. Ephesians 5.5. 5. Paul's just going to like smack us in the head right now. So pay attention, Ephesians 5.5. 5. He says this, For you may be sure of this, That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That word covetous is another word for envy, jealousy. Such a person has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul calls it idolatry. It's not cute. In fact, people perish in hell due to envy. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. They are not saved. If a self-proclaimed Christian lives in the bad fruit of unrepentant, habitual envy, it is a sign that they are not saved. Put envy to death by the Spirit. Don't make peace with it. Put aside all envy and malice and put on Jesus Christ. Put on gratitude and thankfulness and love. If the phrases, that's not fair, why don't I get this? They don't deserve that. Those phrases are coming out of your mouth. You might have an envy problem. Untreated Christian, it will lead you to the depths of hell. It will kill you. It will bar the gates of the kingdom of heaven in your face. As John Owen so famously put it, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Envy has killed many so-called Christians. Fill up your lamps. Stay watchful. Now, Reuben was taken by surprise in this passage by how quickly his brothers resorted to violence. How quickly they resorted to murder. They were going to kill their own brother. And Reuben is the eldest brother, and he realizes that the responsibility for Joseph's death was going to fall on him. He was going to be held responsible if he let them get away with this. And so he convinces them, just throw him in the pit, throw him in the pit, because if he's in the pit, he's not dead, and I can work something out later, and I can somehow get him out of the pit and get him back to my father. And so this plan works, and the brothers decide not to kill him. Instead, they strip him of that coat, that symbol of their father's favor, and throw him into a pit. Now these pits, when you lived in the desert and you were pasturing your flocks, so you needed to get water and so you dig wells. Those wells didn't usually have much water and so very quickly they became dry and so they threw Joseph into one of those wells that were dried up, there was no water in there, to starve, to die of dehydration. These brothers were callous, heartless and immediately after it says that they sat down to eat. This is how much they did not care about what they had just done. They sat down to eat. It's actually a fascinating psychological thing. You can probably talk to Stu a bit more later about it. he will probably tell you about it. When murderers go in and murder people in a house, pretty horrible thing, amazingly, you always go to the table and they always have a meal. It's a bizarre behavior, but humans will go open the fridge and take something from these victims' houses and eat a meal after committing some of the most unspeakable, horrific acts. This is a mark of someone whose conscience is seared. It is gone. They don't really have the ability to feel bad for these people that they just did this horrible thing to. And this is what the brothers do. It's actually a very fascinating, interesting thing to kind of verify the truthfulness of this account. This is what envy produces. Cold-hearted murder. James two describes this very well. I'm sure James is thinking of this passage. You desire and do not have, so You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Yeah, James is really nailing us to the wall on that one, isn't he? The pain this causes is profound. And look what it does to Jacob. My third point, the bereaved father. Listen to this, 25. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. We remember the brothers are in Dothan. It's a popular trade route, right? Some Ishmaelites and midnight traders. Come on down. And then Judah, he has a good plan. Hang on a minute. If we sell him, we'll actually get some money for it. If we kill him, we don't get anything in return. But if we sell him, we'll get some money. And then all of a sudden, Judah has a conscience again. Oh, we can't kill him. He's our own flesh. He's our own brother. We can't kill him. Why don't we just sell him? Oh, Judah. Good guy, eh? Change of heart. It's interesting because these Ishmaelite and Midianite traders would have likely been these boys' second or third cousins because, you know, Midian, Midian was the son of Keturah, right? Abraham's wife. Ishmael, obviously, we know was the son of Hagar. So, these are this kind of keeping it in the family. They're only too happy to buy Joseph as a slave. You know, Egypt had a booming slave market. If they could sell him there, you know, he's educated, he's young, he has skill a skill set. That's a, that's a worthwhile slave. That's an expensive slave. So they buy him for 20 shekels of silver. A yearly wage for a shepherd was eight shekels of silver. That's an impressive amount of money, Joseph. Well, he's getting the money. He's sold for a profit in Egypt and he's given to this high official named Potiphar the captain of the guard. They take his coat of many colours, they cover it in goat's blood and they present it to their father and Jacob is immediately sent into terrible, terrible grief over the loss of his son. Now he thinks that his son has been killed by like a lion, a bear, some fierce animal has come along, there were plenty of lions and bears in Israel at this time and he is just destroyed. For weeks and weeks he's just in misery. His son is dead. And they try to comfort him, and he will not be comforted. He said, my soul will go down to Sheol, the grave, mourning. I wonder what the brothers were feeling at this point. The text doesn't tell us. Was this just like another thing that the brothers got ticked off about? Look how much he mourns for him. We were right in killing Joseph, or sending him off to slavery. Or did they all of a sudden realize what they'd done? And say, oh... We screwed up here, fellas. We don't know what they, how they responded. But God was setting in motion a series of events which would bring about His glorious salvation of many people. His brothers meant this event for evil. But Genesis 50 tells us that God meant it for good. That God was going to bring about a lot of good from this story. In this passage, we see the arrogant young Joseph, humiliated, humbled, brought low, deconstructed. He's stripped of his clothes. He's sent into slavery as a nobody. The favorite of his father, the first of all the brothers, is now a nobody. And unknown to Joseph, his story would become one of the greatest foreshadows in all of the Bible, of the true Saviour, Jesus. Matthew Henry nails this, so I'm not even going to paraphrase him. He says, Joseph here was a type of Christ. Though he was the beloved son of his father and hated by a wicked world, yet the Father sent him out of his bosom to visit us in great humility and love. He came from heaven to earth to seek and to save us, yet then malicious plots were laid against him. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him, but consulted against Him. They said, this is the heir, come let us kill Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. This He submitted to, in pursuance of His design to redeem and save us. See, like Joseph, Jesus was hated for His words. But yet, unlike Joseph, Jesus was humble and meek. Like Joseph, Jesus was conspired against by His own people, Out of envy, Matthew 27, 18 says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up, delivered Jesus up. But yet, unlike Joseph, Jesus was actually killed. Jesus's death, like Joseph, brought much grief to the Father, and yet it would bring about salvation to many people. Joseph was betrayed by his brother, Judah. Jesus was betrayed by Judas same name, one for 20 pieces of silver, the other for 30. Joseph was brought low to save the world from a famine. Jesus was brought low to save the world from death and judgment. In each and every Christian, the same journey happens to you, the journey from humiliation to exaltation. It's the same journey, if you claim the name of Christ, that has happened in your life. You see, God deconstructs us. When we come to faith in Christ, we are taking up our cross with Him. We are taking on Jesus' humiliation. We are embracing the message of the cross, which is foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. When we come to Christ, we are surrendering our life to Him. We are throwing it in the pit with Joseph to receive a new life, to become a new person, Envy is impossible because coming to Christ is a recognition that we deserve nothing except death and judgment. Envy should not be something in our hearts. See, God deconstructs us to tear down our envy and our malice and our greed and our sin, but He doesn't just leave us there. He rebuilds something different in its place. He rebuilds us into something better. The process of coming to Christ requires us to lose our life. But in the process, we are given the only true life. It is painful, but necessary. And for those of us who have gone through it, we go through it again and again and again for Christ. I lost a lot of things coming to Christ, but I gained the most amazing thing, and that was Jesus himself. And I will go through that again a million times to get Jesus. Christian, never forget this. Blessing lies in death. Death to our old selves and new life in Jesus. It can be found nowhere else. You will not find it anywhere else. We daily die to ourselves and we live to God. We daily put to death our sinful desires, especially envy, and put on Jesus Christ. Our new desires. Our old garment, our old life, that coat of many colours, if you would, lies in the pit, it lies stained in goat's blood as we take on the task that God has set before us, we put on that new self. So, how does that happen? How does this change actually occur within us? Well, let's look at envy, we've talked about envy a lot, if envy is displeasure at the fortune of others then putting on Christ entails practicing gratitude in Him. Rather than being displeased by the good of others, how about praising God for them? Or, even better, sacrifice. Sacrifice is truly the opposite of envy. Because rather than being displeased at the good fortune of someone else, you take on discomfort for the blessing of someone else. Jesus showed us, what it means to live without envy. And the word you need to think of is sacrifice. Joseph had to sacrifice, not willingly, it was the path that God brought him on, but later in life, he recognised that it was a good path that God brought him on. He recognised that the will of God was where he needed to be. And that sacrifice that he had to undergo in order to be put in the place that we're going to find out in Genesis 50 where he ends up, was by the good grace of God. This means you've got to put on your new self in Christ. You've got to practice this new nature that was one for you. You have to become like him. When we say put on Jesus Christ, we're saying put on Jesus Christ. We're putting on Jesus, the one who sacrificed all we put to death our old nature. Envy, malice, greed, slander, arrogance, whatever you want to add to that list is not the way that we were taught when we came to Christ. I want to finish with Paul. Ephesians 4:20 20 to 24. That is not the way you had learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, put on the new self created in the likeness of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would pour your spirit out on us that we would hate that old self with the same hatred that You hate, Lord, hatred of sin and misery and destruction and how much destruction envy has wrought in all of our lives and how much misery has been brought to us by this terrible vice. Lord, You know how much envy destroys this world and how much sin corrupts our nature. Father, we thank you that you have not just come through and told us, don't do this, don't do that, but you have given us new desires and a new nature. You've given us a new man to follow. you put to death the old man and given us a new. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who know you, who trust in you, who are dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Lord, would they once again be uh, inspired, Lord, to follow you with their full strength. That they'd be inspired to rest in the power given to, you, given to them by the Holy Spirit, Lord. That they would put on that new self every day, knowing that it is far more blessed to live in sacrifice than envy. And Father, I pray for those here today that do not know you. That do not trust in your son, Jesus. And do not have a hope of an eternal life. I pray, Lord, for those people, would you awaken them by your Holy Spirit to the truth of your Son, Jesus? Would they say no to their old ways and repent and turn from them and come and follow your Son, Jesus? Lord, would they put all their hope in Jesus and not themselves, Lord, so that on that day, they will not have to bear the judgment and punishment that comes from sin, but that they could live in newness of life in your Son, Jesus? Father, we love you. We thank you that you paid that ultimate sacrifice for us.